with me in the book of Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And today we are going to be looking at verses 41 to 46. Matthew 22 verses 41 to 46. And this is the word of God. Amen. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What did you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. We find ourselves at the end of what appears to be an intellectual trial in the temple courts, um, a debate between Jesus and what I like to call the Jewish Union, the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, which represented the political and the intellectual and the spiritual authority of that time. And Matthew gives us an insight in verse 15 into the Machiavellian nature of this encounter. He tells us that they wanted to entangle Jesus in his words to arrest him. You could almost feel the tension in that place, no? The disciples as well as the crowds were about to witness a momentous confrontation. The disciples perhaps were um, anxious about his possibilities against the nobility. Maybe they were even intimidated as these groups were considered to have the finest minds. They were intellectually savvy. They were cunning. They were unscrupulous. They were dishonest. The political party, the Herodians, led the first prosecution. Um, a Jewish political party whose main interest was the preservation of Herod's dynasty. And they wanted to trap Jesus over political matters. Jesus silenced them. The second prosecution was led by the intellectual authority, the Sadducees, a group of, of um, Jewish scholars who uh, did not believe in the metaphysical. They wanted to trap Jesus over one of the most critical discussions of their time, the resurrection. Jesus silenced them. The third and final prosecution was led by the spiritual authority, the Pharisees. They were the, the, the prominent and primary opponents of Jesus' ministry. They wanted to preserve their prominence amongst the people. And they sought to trap Jesus over his knowledge of the Torah. But Jesus silenced them. And Jesus succeeded in his rebuttal against each of his opponents because he knew more than anyone that behind a the question, there is a questioner. 
Questions don't exist in isolation. That there was a real question underneath the question, a secret motive, an evil desire, a deceptive disposition, which is why Jesus never seemed to answer any questions at hand. Have you noticed that? His responses often appeared as utterly unrelated. But, but his opponents in the heart of hearts knew what he was referring to. And that is why they were not able to respond because he punctured their duplicity. He silenced them. He shut their mouths because he exposed and dismantled their concealed agendas. But this debate is not over. Now we come to the cross-examination phase. Now it is Jesus' turn to ask them a question. So he addresses the leaders of this union, the organizers of this plot, the Pharisees. And, and he looks at them and he asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Huh. That's, a, that's an important question, no? A very important question. In fact, I would say that that is the cardinal question that every human being must ask and answer correctly, that is. What do you think about Jesus? What comes to your mind when you think about Jesus? It sounds simple. But it is not, for the answer to this question will determine your destiny. And, and, and regardless of where you come from, your background, your culture, you've had to grapple with this question at some point in your life, no? Have the privilege to pastor in three different cultural settings. In the Hispanic community, in upper middle class white America, but also with African-Americans. And, and I have learned that regardless of your background and regardless of the sociological nuances and complexities and economic realities, Jesus, in one way or another, is viewed in the same way. As an escape mechanism. As an escape out of racial disparities or economic deprivation or marital problems or, or emotional distress or the consequences of dumb decisions, no? Regardless of your opinion of this, all of us in one way or another tend to view Jesus in a liberation form, right? We, we all believe in one way or another in a liberation theology. The disenfranchised and the marginalized seek liberation from societal ills, but the comfortable and the autonomous and the privileged and, and the wealthy seek liberation out of insignificance and loneliness and guilt. Regardless of how wrong he was about pretty much everything, Karl Marx was correct in his critique of how people view Christianity. He used to say that religion, in direct reference to Christianity, 
is the opium of the people. The, the people come to Jesus to change what they cannot change themselves, primarily their emotional or social condition. That some treat Jesus as, a, as an existential drug to numb how they feel about their emotional plight. We all come to Jesus and view Jesus in one way or another as the fixer of our problems, no? That is why German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, dismissing Christianity altogether, used to offer an alternative, what he, he used to call the ubermensch or the superhuman. And he argued, you Christians, keep wasting your time seeking this utopic outcome in Christianity. There you have it. How is that going? Has your suffering ended? You don't need God. God is dead. We have killed him. What you need is an overrealized human. What you need is a hero, and you can become that yourself. And regardless of what you think about Friedrich Nietzsche, the reason why today superheroes are so popular is because of Nietzsche's work. In fact, superheroes are the byproduct of Nietzsche. And they are so loved even by grown men, sadly. Because Christian psychology continues to posit that, that we do long for someone like us to save us out of the mess we are in. And believe it or not, this Nietzschean mentality has permeated our understanding of, of Jesus. So was Jesus a man? Yeah. Did he seem to have superpowers? Yeah. Well, I bet he can save us. So we approach Jesus as a, as a superhero of sorts. And history confirms that, that there is a dangerous misunderstanding uh, between who Jesus is and what he did. Be, between his, his identity and his assignment. The important distinction between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord, and due to the effects of the Enlightenment, the church underwent a dangerous shift from exalting the, the godness and the lordship and the holiness of Jesus to an exaggerated overplay on Jesus as Savior. And this has allowed many people, regardless of their culture, to embrace many aspects of Christianity while remaining unchanged. Why? Because a Savior does not demand anything of you. A Savior does not require anything of you. A Savior doesn't have any authority over your life. A Savior cannot tell you how you should live. A Savior will only give you what your heart desires and what are the implications of this, beloved, that you can thank a Savior. You can appreciate a Savior. You may even love a Savior, but you will never bow to a Savior. And unless you bow to the Lordship of the Savior, you can be saved. Do you understand that? Therefore, to understand the saving of Jesus, we must embrace 
his identity biblically. For what he did is the means by which one can be right with who he is. I'm going to say that again. What he did is the means by which we can be right with who he is. And Matthew has told us that that was precisely the problem of the Jews. You see, they all loved Jesus in his saving role. You know, feeding the hungry and, and healing the sick. And bringing people back to life. But as soon as Jesus began to demand complete allegiance, they began to throw stones at him. Pick up your cross and follow me. I can't do that. Deny yourself. I can't do that. You know that you cannot love your mother or your father or your brother or sister more than me. I can't do that. Sell all your possessions and do what I say. Obviously, I can't do that. That is why Jesus went from thousands upon thousands of followers to 120 scared disciples. It has been said that Jesus began the church shrinkage movement. They all loved him as Savior. But despised him as Lord, and that is precisely what Jesus is after in this passage. Do you want to understand the son of David? You must first understand the son of God. Who is the Christ? What do you think about Jesus? Whose son is he? He asked the Pharisees. And in a masterful way, Jesus is addressing their misunderstanding of, of Jesus. And, and I'm, I'm thinking over here, like, perhaps the, the Pharisees were, is that all you got? Maybe they thought that that was the weakest comeback from any intellectual adversary. The son of David. Everybody knows that. And you know that that is the second thing that we memorize after the Shema, right? Everybody knows. Go ask everybody whose son is the Christ. Everybody will say the son of David. Then, then Jesus replies. How is it then? That David, in the spirit, calls him Lord. Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how? And I want you to underline that word because that is the determining argument of Jesus. How is he his son? What is Jesus doing here? Exposing their misunderstanding of Christ. You all say that, that the Christ is the son of David. Why don't we go to David and ask him what he thinks about the Christ? So he takes them to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Alluded or quoted around 27 times. And, and it is so because this is the most jam-packed messianic chapter verse in the Old Testament and it is speaking prophetically about the coronation of Jesus 
And that is why Peter calls David a prophet in Acts chapter 2, because it is speaking proleptically, uh, uh, speaking to the future about the reign of Christ. Psalm 110 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And if you read the whole chapter in its entirety, the whole thing is about the lordship of Christ. Jesus tells them that David overhears a conversation between Yahweh and Adoni, between the father and the son, the Messiah. The first Lord that you find in your Bibles, usually in all caps, is the word Yahweh. That it is, is known as the Tetragrammaton. It is the name by which God is known, Yahweh. The second Lord, usually with capital L-O-R-D in small caps, is the word Adoni in the Hebrew, which means Master, Sovereign, Lord. And that is the title of Yahweh. And David is saying that Yahweh said to his master. Interesting. That Yahweh said to his Adoni, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What is he talking about? He's talking about the future coronation of Jesus after his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. This is the same thing that Paul speaks to or about in the oldest Christian hymn. It's called the Carmen Christi, found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, when he tells the Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. But becoming a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form. He humbled himself. But becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Therefore. I love this part. Therefore. God. Yahweh has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Adoni, that Christ is Lord to the praise of God the Father. This is David's Lord. And according to Paul, this Lord was before he became. I'll let you process that after the service. That this Lord was God before he became a savior. That this Jesus was Lord before he became a savior. And he is Lord because he is the pre-existing God. He is Lord because he did not have a beginning. He is Lord because all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is Lord because he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. But he is also Lord because the Father has crowned him as king and has subjugated all his authority under his feet. And his authority is cosmic in heaven, on earth, and under earth. 
And Jesus is saying that David is saying that this is my cosmic Lord. Therefore, verse 45, if Christ is the Lord of David, how then can he be his son? Don't miss this. The Christ is the son of David insofar as it relates to his earthly mission. That the son of God, the king, became a human and he came through the lineage of David to do what? To to live the life that we could not live? Thus fulfilling the requirements of the law? But what else? He came to die the death that we all deserve to satisfy the just wrath of God for propitiation and expiation of our sins. Why? I love how John Owen puts it. That the nature which had offended a holy God might suffer and make satisfaction so that in Jesus we may find a sufficient Savior. But he is the Lord of David because he is God. Because he was the Lord of David before he became the son of David. But not only is he the Lord of David, brothers and sisters, he is the Lord of the Jews. And he is the Lord of the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And, and he's also the Lord of the Gentiles. And, and he's, he's also the Lord of the skeptics and the, and the pseudo-atheists. And, and, and he's the Lord of Satan. And he's the Lord of demons. And he is Lord of all the principalities and all his enemies. Which is the reason why David overhears Yahweh telling Adoni until I make your enemies your footstool. That speaks about the complete subjugation of his enemies under the lordship of Christ. That is our Lord. Amen. But you know what? He is also your Lord. And he is my Lord. And we don't make him Lord. He is Lord. Amen. And the only way, the only way one can relate to this Lord according to Paul is by bowing. He says that Every knee will bow. We either bow now or we will be forced to bow later, but every knee will bow. That is God's terms of peace. 
True saving faith, therefore, is submission to the Lordship of Christ. For when we submit to who he is, Lord, then we can receive the benefits of what he did, Savior. Do you understand that? After Jesus' reply, they were all left dumbfounded. And they did not dare to ask any more questions. In fact, the title Son of David is no longer used after this encounter by anyone. You may be thinking right now, where did you get this idea that an emphasis on Jesus as Savior is misleading and dangerous? Perhaps you grew up learning about this Savior. And maybe you have believed in a Savior. And your understanding of Jesus is surrounded by this idea of his saving. Where did I get this idea that emphasizing or overemphasizing on his saving is misleading? In your Bibles. So let me prove it to you. You know how many times the New Testament refers to Jesus as Savior? 22 times. Well, that sounds like a lot, no? You know how many times the New Testament refers to Jesus as Lord? 380 times. Let's go to the book of Acts, the primer on evangelism. How many times does the book of Acts refer to Jesus as Savior? Two times. Jesus as Lord, 31 times. Let's go to the gospel. The witnesses of Jesus. How many times we find the, the gospels making a reference of Jesus as Savior? Two times. Jesus as Lord, 116 times. The book of Matthew. How many times Matthew? uses that or refers to Jesus as Savior? Never. How many times does he refer to Jesus as Lord? 30 times. What is happening in here? That the emphasis of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus as Lord, for that is who he is. The problem is not Jesus, but us, how we understand who he is. And we have inverted, even unintentionally, the emphasis because it leads to a type of Christianity that does not interfere with our sense of autonomy and control. It's a type of Christianity, or this type of Christianity is Christless, because unless Christianity is grounded in the Lordship of Christ, that Christianity is not Christianity at all. 
So here's the question I want you to think through as we land the plane here. How can we recover a biblical perspective on the relationship between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord? Don't miss this. Salvation is not deliverance from a what, but from a who. Salvation is not a deliverance from a what, but from a who. There are three things that I want you to take home. The first one, you must understand who you must be saved from. You must be saved from God. From his wrath, from his justice, from himself. Romans 5, 9 says, Therefore we now, being justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. And, and let me say something that perhaps may shock some of you. Hell is not the absence of God, but the very presence of God in his wrath. You must be saved from God. The second thing, you must understand who you must be saved by. A mere human cannot do that. God himself needs to come to rescue us. That is, what, that is why the name Jesus means God saves. God himself needs to be the one rescuing us from himself. In the same verse. Paul says, therefore, we now have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him. Who is him? Jesus. And who is Jesus? God. In John chapter 1, John puts it beautifully when he says that the word, the son of God, became what? Flesh. And he what? Dwelt among us. That word dwelled means tabernacled. It means that God pitched a tent in the person of Christ. God himself had to come to rescue us from himself. You must be saved from God, by God. Thirdly, you must understand who you must be saved for. What is salvation for? Freedom for us to do what we want? Salvation grants us the freedom to do what he says. Which is why Christians in the New Testament are called doulos or slaves. Paul, the slave of Christ. Peter, the slave of Christ. Jude, the slave of Christ. That is why Jesus says that if you want to be my disciple, you must do what? Obey my commands. The greatest 
omission in our understanding of the great commission is that little part at the end that says, teach them to obey what I command. Salvation is not a ticket to heaven. Salvation is entrance into a fully devoted submission to the Lordship of Christ. The Lord must save you from himself, by himself, and for himself. So what Jesus did on the cross is the means by which we can be right with who he is. And in doing so, his love shone forth. Why? Because God should have killed us instead. And instead of doing that, he killed his own son. That's love. That is love. That is why Martin Luther used to call it the great exchange. His life for mine. What then is the right response, brothers and sisters? Repentance. In, in, and I want you to pay attention to this because this is critical. Repentance. And if you don't repent, brothers and sisters, listen to me. All who are here, listen to me. If you don't repent now, you will have to face him in judgment. And according to the book of Revelation, he will be ruthless in the execution of his justice. And he is extending his hand this morning. That's grace. And that is mercy. But you must repent. And repentance is not feeling sorry. Although feeling sorry is part of repentance. You see, repentance is not ascertaining certain facts. Although believing certain facts is part of repentance. Judas felt sorry and did not repent. Satan believed all the facts and believed all the facts, yet he does not repent. What then is repentance? Repentance is an admission to our offense to a holy God and a turning in our serving. It is a turning. It is a turning. I love how Paul describes it in, in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 when he says, You turn to God. You turn to God from what? From idols to serve the living and true God. Repentance is a turning in our serving. From serving ourselves, from serving this world, to serve the living God. To serve Christ, to become slaves of Christ. That is exactly what Thomas did when he touched Jesus. The words that he uttered are the same words found, found in Psalm 110. When he looked at Jesus, he said, My God and my Lord. That is true repentance. That is true faith. That is a submitting and a submissive faith before I leave I want to address some of you because I know that there are people in this place who are suffering
And perhaps you have come to Christ as an escape. And today you have realized that that's not what he offers. He may eradicate your suffering in the here and now, or he may not. And that is his prerogative. In fact, he may leave the suffering to last a while. Because that is precisely the means by which he will keep you close to him. But this is what he has promised you. Pay attention to this. He has promised to give you peace. Not an earthly peace, but a peace that surpasses all understanding. He has also promised to take upon himself all your anxieties in the midst of your suffering. He has also promised to take care of you in the midst of your suffering. And he has also promised to intercede on your behalf in the midst of your suffering. Why? Because he understands. And you may be wondering how does he understand? As the beauty of the God-man. That this cosmic Lord who demands complete allegiance experienced the trauma of a broken world. So he can sympathize with us because he went through it himself. That is the Lord of David. That is the Lord we serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you gave us this morning to open your word, to hear from you. And we thank you for our Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what you did for us through him. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. I pray, Father, that the word that was proclaimed this morning will do the work for which you send it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.